have anything to do with anything in particular other than <clears throat> while we were singing our uh, worship songs this morning and the sound booth guys are navigating, uh, you know, to bring us to proper stanzas and things. I had this kind of a flashback blast from the past. And if you've been coming to this church for a while, you will remember this. But the way we used to sing our worship songs um, was we did have a screen, but we had an overhead projector. And we had a little volunteer that would sit right here with the overhead projector songs and change them out as we sang them differently. And the person that I remember doing that um, at this particular time was little Katie Abernathy. She would sit down there faithfully uh, for a long, long time. She served us in that way, and she, they'd have to keep all the little pages straight and put them up at the right time and so forth, and it was just uh, it was a neat little thought. I also had another little neat thought from Blast from the Past as I saw Noah walk off of here, and he grabbed his Bible, which is about the size of a matchbook. And I remember being able to read a Bible that small. <laughs> Not anymore. I can barely read this one. Well, we have six blasts of the trumpet behind us when we reach chapter 10. Well, we're in chapter 11 this morning, but in chapter 10, it set the stage because the focus changed in that chapter from God's plagues upon the earth to the people of God. And, and you've been informed that every once in a while John does that with his visions before the scroll, but he was instructed to eat it in Revelation 10, 10 through 11. I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And we were reminded that that scroll represents God's word. And it was a great application because we know that when we come upon God's word, when, when we drink it in, when we desire to have it, we desire it to have us, that there are times when it is so sweet. It is like honey. It's, it ministers to us. It grows us. It instructs us. It often gives us uh, the guidance that we need in our lives or, or times of comfort. But it doesn't just do that. There's also times uh, where it hurts. There's a bitterness there. It, it hurts in our inner man when we take it all the way in because if we're going to be honest with it, and we're going to read all of it, we're going to come across verses and passages that really challenge us and poke us and convict us in hard ways, and many times will have us on our knees, if not flat on our faces. And that's the bitterness part of it. And John is told, though passages in the Bible like Revelation that has a lot of judgment, he is to continue to proclaim the Word of God. The sweet parts and the bitter parts. And I think that's a, a great challenge for us and really for every believer is that when it comes to proclaiming God and the character of God, we want to proclaim all of God's Word to include the bitter parts, uh, the sweet parts, but also the bitter parts. And that's hard because we realize that in the Bible story, it acknowledges suffering. It acknowledges loss. It comes right out and tells us that you can expect not just to uh, endure the arduous task of simply dying to self as if that's not hard enough, 
But also there's persecution. There are others that will not appreciate you because they do not love Christ. But I think the warning here for John is to not what we might call edit God's Word or censor God's Word. And unfortunately, I think we see some of that. We see some of that even in the church today. Uh, We see Christian teachers, we see Christian influencers, and all they want to do is... uh, encourage you, give you all the sweet parts of the Bible because the world's hard enough, let me just give you the positive here. And unfortunately, that can have negative results as much as, well, who wouldn't want to just be encouraged all the time? But it's not what's best for us. It can have negative results in that we need all of God's Word. It's useful for teaching, correcting rebuking and training in righteousness it's a whole package there's times where we're being lifted up and there's times where we're being scolded there's times where we're being trained there's times we're being instructed and that's the package of of God's word that we get so if we don't have the bitter with the sweet then we become uh, disfigured Christians if you will we're just we're just not strong in all the areas of our lives that we need to be we're not hearing everything that we need to hear. And so as I thought about that and was think and reviewing that in my head this morning about kind of an image of a disfigured Christian, I remember a Super Bowl ad uh, that was hilarious. And at least it was hilarious to me. So in the Super Bowl ad you have this little town that seems to be out in the middle of nowhere and it's very small and on the front porch. It kind of ragged buildings in this town. It's not a city, nothing special about it. On the front porch sit two kind of country looking guys and they're on, on chairs and between them is a table and there's a bowl on that table and in that bowl are Skittles. It's filled with Skittles. And they're just kind of taking turns eating the Skittles, one on the right and one on the left and then all of a sudden it's like the music comes and it focuses down into the bowl and there's just one left. There's just one left. And so they look at each other. And they're like, we're going to settle this the usual way. Well, then they get up and then you figure out where the commercial is headed. Because when they get up, one of their arms is like this big. And the other one's just barely there. So they go out and they're going to settle it the usual way. And the way the town settles disputes is that they arm wrestle for it. So now the whole town is coming out and they're hyped up. And everybody in the town has one huge arm. So you get the picture how they all settle the disputes. As a matter of fact, the little kids have one huge arm. Even the dog in the commercial has one huge arm. And so they settle their issues with um, arm wrestling. And it goes on. And it's, it's really a funny commercial. It's, it's hilarious. But I think it's hilarious because it is a commercial and we can laugh at it. But, but, but there's, there's truth in here. When we think about studying books like Ecclesiastes and Revelation and, and the epistles, it's the whole counsel of God. It's God's character. It's, it's, it's special revelation. And it tells us things about God we would never figure out on our own. And there are things that we can figure out on our own through general revelation, Scripture tells us. But God is kind to reveal to us the sickness of humanity as well as the grace of and the goodness of God. So when we don't proclaim the whole counsel of God, and we only want to thrive, say, on encouragement, then 
the rest of our spiritual lives might just be kind of dangling weekly. And then when it's time to get in a fight or a battle, we might lose or we get discouraged or our faith is shipwrecked because our faith was, was lopsided. We want to keep that in mind as we move through this book. And this brings us to our chapter at hand, chapter 11. Again, we're between trumpet blasts 6 and 7. Now, we are going to enter into some, um, probably the most amusing and perplexing material yet. And I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface of it. We'll take three sermons to, to go through this chapter. It's very interesting, in fact. It comes with um, perplexing characters. Uh, we talk about days. We talk about months. We're going to talk about the two witnesses and the New Jerusalem and, Jerusalem and the temple and so forth. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, so we get a flavor for it. But then I'm just going to kind of zero in on the first two verses to lay a foundation for the messages to come. So, Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and that they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third, third woe is to come. I warned you it's a colorful passage. What do we do with all that? How much of it is literal? How much of it is symbolism? Do we take the... Do we take it down to the very day? Are there two witnesses or do they symbolize... Things Well, there are two camps, basically, 
here. Two different ways to look at it. And one is, that is to look at it as literally as possible. To take things as literal. The days are literal. The times are literal. There are literally two witnesses there. Those two witnesses would be um, Moses and Elijah. Because Elijah was the one who, who uh, stopped the prayed and stopped the rains and prayed and they came again. And of course Moses was the one who raised his staff and was uh, the impl- God's implement in bringing the plagues here. And both of those are referred to in this passage. The challenge is, uh, if we're going to take that route, how literal do we take it? Because you can't take it all literally, right? Even the passage doesn't take itself all literally. Um, so then we get into this problem where we have to figure out, okay, what are we going to hold on to as literal and what are we going to spit out as, nope, that's just symbolic. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, the other camp is to just see it as symbolic, which is kind of the, what we've been trailing this entire time, and that is that Revelation as an apocalyptic writing is really, for the most part, not to be taken literally. It is symbolic. It's, perp- it's literature that is purposely written in that way. It's fantastical. It's almost sci-fi. Well, you know by now, I hope you know by now, what, what side uh, I lean towards. And I like to actually pick, uh, I kind of cheat in that I pick a little bit of all the different four different ways to interpret this book. But I definitely learn or lean towards um, the symbolic interpretations. Because to look at these and begin to take them literally, you, you find, if you carry it out to its logical end, it just doesn't work. And I've tried that because I don't have a preference of how to interpret these things. I want to understand Scripture. So how can this be symbolism, though, if I'm going to lean towards that when it sounds like, well, you have literal days and you have two witnesses and they sound an awful lot like Elijah and Moses. Well, we're going to break that apart and hopefully come to an understanding of these things. But one thing I want to, to draw to your attention, I've mentioned it before, that in the book of Revelation, there is no um, literal quote of the Old Testament. There are no scriptures that are quoted word for word. But what John does in this kind of literature is he refers to an Old Testament passage like he's done here. He refers to something that everybody would know, everybody would be familiar with. Okay, I'm with you. You're talking about Moses and Elijah, or you're talking about the temple. It's probably the Old Testament temple or the the tabernacle. I'm with you here. But then he builds upon it. He changes it. He uses the familiar to reintroduce us to uh, the end times, to introduce us to material that we're not familiar with because we haven't seen it or we haven't heard it. So how do you describe a place, say, like heaven where we've never been? Well, you have to use familiar things. But it doesn't mean that heaven is familiar, so familiar to us that there's not a new aspect to it. We saw a little bit of this in um, Revelation chapter 4, where you begin to, uh, John gets this vision in the throne room, and you begin to see all these creatures around the throne room, and he starts uh, describing them you know, with four eyes and so forth, and you're like, okay, that's Daniel's vision. Uh, that, and that's Isaiah's vision here. You're talking about the seraphim and the cherubim. But then he continues to scribe these creatures and they're nothing like. They don't wind up being anything like the Old Testament creatures. They're something completely new. So that's kind of John's technique 
here. And we want to keep that in mind because, you know, how much of this do we take literal? Uh, do these, are there literally two witnesses? And do they literally breathe fire? There are some interpreters who say, yes, God's going to empower two people. They're going to be like dragons, just like we read in the storybooks. And if you're their enemy, scorch time. Now, that's, that's a hard for me to swallow. It makes more sense to me that that fire would symbolize something or the words that came out of their mouth because, you know, we know God's word is, is like fire and, and it's like a hammer and it's described in other ways. So we're going to look at most of that a little bit later on in the next one. But <clears throat> here's where I think, let me just blow your minds for a second and tell you what I think about this passage and then we'll take some time to unwind it. And we have different entities here. I see that the temple in this passage is actually the church, the people of God. I see that the two witnesses in this passage are a part of the people of God here. The part of the people of God or the church that will be trampled upon, that will suffer, that will be persecuted. I see that the great city represents a godless civilization that comes against the people of God and will therefore eventually be destroyed. I see the resurrection of the two witnesses, the church. It's like an explanation or it's, um, it's like a, uh, an explanation point at the end of a sentence. The resurrection of the two witnesses. The two witnesses are the church, uh, God's witness on the earth, and they raise up, it is a, a message that you can't stomp out God's people. That God's people will live forever. That what gets in the end stamped out or destroyed are those that do not confess Christ. It's the wicked that will die and be judged, whereas the saved will be exalted into the presence of God. So that's the passage in a nutshell. And we're going to begin to see how we can get there. Verse 1, then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff. We're talking about a temple here. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So here's another example of John being our participant. He's not just seeing that, he's told. And he gets out some kind of an antique tape measure that didn't strap on your side. It was a rod. It was a staff. It had increments of measurements on it and in certain um, lengths, just like we'd have a yardstick today. So he participates in this. And there are often times when God called his prophets to do things like this, to, to participate in a, some kind of symbolism. We think about the Old Testament in Ezekiel, where God told Ezekiel to go into his house and he said I want you to to break a hole through the wall of your house and I want you to break a, a hole knock a hole through the wall of your house big enough for you to get out of it and I want you to pack your, your suitcase whatever they use as a suitcase in that day and I want you to climb through that hole with your suitcase and that's the symbolism that the people of the rebellious Israelites were going to be exiled. 
and say, you better pack your bags because this is what's going to happen to you. It's a symbol of what's going to happen to you because of your rebellion against God. He will exile you from the land. Isaiah walked naked for a period of time and bare feet or barefoot, I guess you'd say. Why? It's, again, you're going to be taken. You're going to be conquered people. You're going, to, you're going to be stripped of everything and taken out of this land because of your rebellion. And so prophets often, that's just a few examples, but prophets were often used. God would tell them to do certain things. So we have uh, also, by the way, in Ezekiel, he is given a vision where he is measuring the temple. Just like we hear here. So a lot of people, when they read Revelation, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would think to yourself, well, yeah, um, Ezekiel did this very same thing. Now, he had a vision of the temple. You remember that the Israelites did go into exile and they came back and Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel and so forth, they rebuilt the temple. And the idea was, um, Ezekiel's vision was this grand vision, vision of a newer temple. And the assumption was that Nehemiah and Ezra would rebuild the temple to this caliber. It was beautiful with the gates. Everything was measured out and named. But that never came to pass. The temple that was rebuilt literally in the land was not near as grand as what Ezekiel's vision was. And so many scholars believe that that vision was for a later time. So if you take that later time, what is the grander temple in the Scriptures when you roll over to the New Testament? What is, what is the temple in the New Testament? It's the people of God. The people of God are the temple. There's this major transition that has been taking place very clearly in Scripture. So the temple in the New Testament represents the people of God and a lot of scholars believe that that was the vision that God was preparing people for. So then something happens. He says, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample. Excuse me. The holy city. What is this outer court? Well, the Old Testament temple under Solomon didn't have that outer court. It had the basically uh, two courts. And Herod's temple had three courts. Uh, you had the court of women, you had the court of men, and the court of the priests. But around all of that was what they called the court of Gentiles. So, The temple was walled off, and then there was another wall that went all the way around the temple, which created another court where the Gentiles, the worshiping Gentiles, were welcome to come and worship the Lord. But they couldn't get into certain courts, right? It was defined. And it was prohibited. As a matter of fact, there were signs in that day that said, you may not enter into this court, basically if you're not Jewish, uh, or you will be executed. They took it very, very seriously there. So you had the court of women, the court of men, and then eventually a court of priests and around that, Gentiles. It was walled off from the city, so it was still a part of the temple, but it was walled off from the other courts in the temple. Death to any Gentile that would enter into the courts that they were not supposed to enter into. So the outer court in verse 2 would be Obviously, the court of the Gentiles. So what is going on in this vision? What is being communicated here? 
Well, it's possible that John's making it, some, some people say John's making a distinction between the true church, which would be the, the uh, court of the Jews, as opposed to the court of Gentiles, which would be fake believers. And so they're not allowed in to the true temple. And we do know that, and they're going to be trampled. Uh, they'll be punished for that. And we do know that history, Christian history, is filled with posers. It's filled with fake converts and fake confessions. That's a possibility there. But the, because John's talking about the entire temple, the Gentiles in that outer court were true worshipers of God. So it's not a, really a good representation of, of fake Christians. So, but if we say that, then we have to say, well, you mean to say that the true believers are the ones that will be trampled? The true believers are the ones that will suffer if they're a part of the temple? And that's exactly correct because what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, we're, we're being warned by God that part of our makeup as the church is in different parts in different times of the world and to different degrees it entails suffering. And God is kind to warn us about that. So many scholars believe that this is a portion of the church which would, remember, which would represent people in a different time or place around the globe who will be trampled and who will be overcome by those that do not believe in the Lord. Because the temple is the people of God. So the outer court gets trampled here. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. So we have another example of how hard it is to nail things down. Because at first, the thing that was trampled, right, was the outer court. Well, now it's the city. The holy city all of a sudden. So there's, there's a representation here. What is it? Well, that represents the people of God as well. It's the people of God that came to the temple. It's the people of God, God's people, that dwelt in the, the holy city. That's why they call it holy. So you see how difficult it is to, to begin to take things literally and try to nail them down in order to explain what comes next. It's, it's confusing if we try to do that actually. So I believe that this is the same thing. The outer temple, the temple, the holy city, it all represents the people of God. And I think this is what Revelation has been kind of showing us all the time is that the individual entities, the temple, the people of God, things that God uses in the end will come together to represent one new thing. These are uh, symbolic individual entities that God is pulling from the familiar to introduce us to a realm of revelation that we have not understood before. What God has been planning all along. It's used to point to something that is grander perhaps than we could ever imagine. So if we think about the temple and the holy city and the people of God, what, what could this possibly be pointing to? Why is John measuring this temple? Well, the big picture I would propose to you is that it is all the dwelling place of God. So in, in our lifetime and in our world, we have places 
all along in redemptive history where God has dwelled. There's, there are places that we go to meet with God. But in the end, the idea is that all of it in the, in the heavens and the new earths is the place to meet God. There's no particular temple or city that we have to go to because the whole realm is the temple of God and the people live constantly in the presence of God. There are no separations, there's no walls, there's no curtains that were used to teach us uh, in the Old Testament and the Scriptures. So it, it comes together. They symbolize what Christ has accomplished for us. This grand vision. So I want to get ahead of myself a little bit here. And in chapter 21, just to, so it make, hopefully will make a little bit of sense to us. In other words, you, you don't, in, in the new heavens and in earth, you don't go to the temple. You're, you're in the temple because you are in the presence of God. What Christ has accomplished for us as His people is to dwell forever with Him in the very presence of God so that you're never not in the presence of God. It's not like, well, you're in this city in heaven and you cannot be in the presence of God. So that's where all of this comes together in chapter 21. I'm just going to get a little ahead of myself to, um, to poke into this. In chapter 21, they're talking about the new city, not the temple. And again, it's to be measured. And when you look at the calculations, it turns out that it's a perfect cube. So the, the new Jerusalem in this vision in 21 turns out to be a perfect cube. There's only one measurement or one place in the Old Testament that has been constructed like this. And that is within the temple, the Holy of Holies. Only that is a perfect cube. And so the, 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 the idea here, and by the way, in chapter 21, there is no temple there. You don't need a temple there. Again, you don't have to go to the temple to meet with God. So the idea is that the new heavens and the new earth as being uh, constructed in a perfect cube is that it's all God's presence. And so what Revelation is doing here is, is pushing us and warming us up to the idea of what God has in store for us in the heavens. And all of this symbolism serves to take us there. All of this will become a little clearer in the, uh, the verses to come. But I just I appreciate how God warms our minds up to these things. There, there's no separation. It's not just that the curtain has been torn. There's no curtain in heaven. There's no separation. We are constantly in the presence of God. Well, what about the time and the 42 months? I'm going to spend a little bit of time with this because we're going to see it. Not only is it in other places in Scripture, but it also pops up in the book of Revelation many, many times. 1,260 days. Uh, same, it's the same as three and a half years. And the calculation is if you uh, assume every month has 30 days in it. That's how you get the calculation. Every month has exactly 30 days unlike our months. And then you begin to do the multiplication of the months and the years and so forth. So you have 1,260 days. It all is the same thing. Oh, three and a half years. This is um, 
you know, is this something that we take as an exact time? Is God telling us that in the future there's going to come a time of persecution or some kind of catastrophic event that will last exactly 3.5 years? Or is this symbolic? Well, you know by now that I lean towards the symbolic. And there's a very popular Christian position. Actually, it's been... uh, It's been propagated for for many, many years. It's basically church history, this position. It was understood as the proper interpretation of this passage, and many scholars adhere to this. So we're going to try to zero in on this time, and I'm going to take a little time to explain it. That's how I will close, because it's historical, and it will take a little time to explain it. But we're going to see it again. So as believers in the, in the first century, what would this mean as they read these words? And they, he starts throwing these numbers around. And what should it mean to us as we read them this morning and we will continue to read them? Well, the first century Jews, when they read these terms and, and knowledgeable Christians, would very likely immediately know what John was getting at. Because... It's, a, it's what we might call a cultural trigger. Every culture has its, its events that are notorious. Events that they, you, can, you can say a phrase or something and everybody in that culture, because that's your history, understands where you're coming from. You don't have to give the whole story. So, um, for instance, if I say the words four score in seven years, What am I talking about? You know. Most of you know what I'm talking about immediately because that's a part of our history. It's a cultural trigger. It immediately takes me back to the Gettysburg Express and then I start expanding on that and thinking about linking and so forth. Now, if I stood in a large crowd, it would have to be large because it would have to have older people in it. I stand in a crowd and I say, November 1963, Dallas. That is a cultural trigger for many. Now, that's a little before my time. But November 1963, Dallas would get a rise out of a lot of people because that's the exact day that uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And a lot of people can remember exactly what they were doing at that time when they heard the news. Well, here's one more relevant. A cultural trigger for us would be 9-11. All I have to do is, if I just say 9-11... People that don't understand our culture won't know anything, right? What do you mean 9-11? Is that like 7-11 but better? So it's, it's 9-11. We understand that. That's the Twin Towers. I actually know exactly what I was doing at that moment as I watched the planes crash into the, ten, the, the Twin Towers. I stood in disbelief. I can almost relive that day and that time because it is a cultural trigger. So what kind of cultural trigger would the, the, the 42 months, three and a half years, so forth, be for the Jews? Well, it was a very defining moment in Jewish history that's known as the Maccabean Revolt. Many of you have heard about the Maccabees, the Maccabean Revolt. And you don't read about it in your Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's because it's a part of history that took place between the Testaments And when you're reading your Bible, you're reading the Old Testament and Nehemiah and Ezra, they're rebuilding the temple. And then it closes and then you you turn the page to the New Testament and all of a sudden, the Romans are 
the world power, whereas in the Old Testament, uh, it was the Persians when that part closed. So what happened between the Testaments? Well, what happened between the Testaments was the Greeks, and specifically Alexander the Great, who was an incredibly uh, capable commander, and he raised up a very disciplined army with new military tactics, and they basically, he was an ambitious young guy, and he took on the world with his little military machine. And he conquered the world, and he went as far as India. Though this, this guy was something before he died. I think he, was, um, I think he died at 33 years old. For some reason that pops into my head. Um, so anyway, that's what happened between the Testaments, the Greeks. Alexander the Great died. The kingdom that he had conquered was turned over to two generals. You've heard of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. He had Ptolemy and Seleucus as two generals here. They inherited this kingdom. And by the way, in the Bible you will read about Hellenization. Or the, the, the Jews, the Hellenized Jews. And to be Hellenized means that you either speak the Greek language or you have adopted the Greek culture. And the reason they call that is because Alexander, one of the reasons he was so successful is because when he conquered a people, he basically said, you can, leave, you can live in peace and prosperity and relative freedom. I, will, I have no intention of controlling your life if you adopt my culture. You be basically become one of us. And it worked. It was very, very effective. And so that now the Middle East, when you turn the page into the New Testament, the Middle East is Hellenized, basically. Here, It's a part of his kingdom. So, these two generals, you know, power kind of gets to you, and they didn't like splitting it. They fought each other all the time over who they wanted it all. And the Middle East is caught in the middle of this battle. Israel, Jerusalem is caught in the middle of this battle. One day you owe the Ptolemies homage, and the next day it's the Seleucids. And they were getting tired of this. The Jewish people were very tired of this. They're trying to figure out, you know, how much more of this can go on. What are we supposed to do about this? Should we just rebel? And then along comes Antiochus IV Epiphanes, which you may have heard of. He was a ruler of Seleucids. They were on top at this time, and he was a brutal guy, and he was very anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews, and he made laws against even possessing Jewish scriptures. You weren't allowed to possess Jewish scriptures. You weren't allowed to practice Jewish religion. You weren't allowed to go to the temple and offer your sacrifices. Um, you couldn't even uh, practice the Sabbath. He hated the whole thing. He was a die-hard pagan. So he was the one, infamously known as the Greek that went into the temple, the sacred temple of the people of God. And he sacrificed pigs on it. And he sacrificed pigs to his pagan god on the altar of the temple of Israel. Now you can imagine that didn't go over very well. And so that was a real in-your-face thing. In 167 B.C. there was a priest by the name of Mattaniah who had had enough. And when they came to get homage from he said, uh, nope. And they ran him through with a spear. Now he had three sons. 
And they didn't appreciate that at all. One of his sons' name was Judas Maccabee, also known as Judas the Hammer. He began what we know of as the Maccabean Revolt. And here's where it gets interesting. Judas turned out to be an ingenious military leader, and he kind of introduced people, I understand, to guerrilla warfare. They're way outnumbered. What chance do they have? How can we, we rebel against a greater power? Well, he came up with guerrilla warfare. He found people who were also disgruntled, say, hey, will you join me in fight? And they made little bands, and when the Greeks came in to try to get near on their, their territory of the temple, they'd pop out of the mountains or pop out of the bushes and they would go make war against them and then disappear. And so they were a very hard enemy to fight. I actually understand they're still, um, that methodology is still taught in military school. So they were very successful in this revolt. Eventually Judas was killed and one of his brothers takes over. Now, how long did this go on? This revolt lasted exactly three and a half years. And the Jews were victorious. They kicked the Greeks out of the temple. And they began to reestablish their lives. And there was great rejoicing. But that battle, that contest, took three and a half years. It took exactly that amount of days in history. So what happens is this amount of days becomes symbolic of a period of time where you're going to undergo great hardship, you're going to be beaten down. I mean, they had pigs sacrificed on their sacred altar. But it will not last the whole time. You will, ha- you will be victorious in this battle. Seven is the number for completeness. So the idea is that it's not, you're not going to keep being defeated until there's no more of you. I will stop it short. You're going to have some hard times. But I am going to stop it short where you will be victorious. So that's the symbolism. That's the, the trigger here that people would understand these figures as. It reminds me in Matthew 24-22 when Jesus said, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. How many days? What days? We don't know. Jesus doesn't give us exact figure. But the idea is that there will be a time when it will seem like there's no end, there's no hope. How can we ever conquer our enemies under these circumstances? And yet, God will intervene. He will cut it short. You will be victorious. Your enemies are the ones who will suffer. That's what the 42 months convey. So as we close and we think about this, that's encouragement that there is an outlet. There's an outlet. There's a a way of escape, if you will, to the hardships and even all of the judgments and the wrath that God will pour out in this book that we're constantly uh, sitting under. God has this. God is mindful of those who are His. It is the wicked that will receive the final blow of destruction. The people of God will land in the Holy of Holies, if you will, in the very, very presence of God where you cannot be out of the presence of God, where you are as close to God as you are to your hands and your feet. 
May God bless the preaching of His Word. And I want to quote from the book of Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.